you know, you think about it, uh, you could get a room this size or 10 times this size, and every person in the room would have some commonalities. One of the commonalities would be is that we all want to be happy. We want to live as happy a lives as we can. Now, were you to ask the question, though, to that large group of people, do you consider worship as being a, a core pivotal issue pertaining to your practical everyday life and the quality of your life, your happiness, and so forth? The vast majority of them would say, no, 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 that's, <laughs> that's for, you know, people that like that sort of thing. That's, that's for people that feel the need to uh, involve themselves in that sort of thing. But very few would consider, and it's tragic, that worship is core to the quality of your life, my life, as well as the content of my character. Right now, who I am, the content of my character, and the quality of my life, it is not dictated by the circumstances in my life. It is dictated by my relationship with my Creator. And what we've been saying in this series is that, that worship, first of all, it's about worth. It's about who have we found that we consider supremely trustworthy to follow fully, and we're so confident in their trustworthiness, we follow them freely, and we want to follow them forever. Are we maybe just following ourselves? That's what I did in my first 23 years. That's what many people do. Well, worship, though, is about saying, I'm going to give supreme regard to someone or something because I consider it worthy of my supreme trust, my supreme regard. Now, in this series, we, we've said again and again that everybody, unlike what, what most people would think, I, I can prove it to anybody who would have a conversation with me, everybody, even an atheist, are actually worshipers, actually worshiping either, the Scripture says, either the Creator Himself, and that wouldn't be true of an atheist, of course, or something that the Creator created. It might be a person, might be a place, might be a thing. There's someone or something that we are revolving around it becomes the center point of our life it becomes our treasure we talked last week about how we have to be very careful about the things we start to treasure because our heart will follow them and with that the trajectory of our life what we care about the most what we invest in the most what starts to modify the way we behave are we just one of these people that injustifies the means? You know, I'm just going to get all the gratification I can as long as I can because that's all there is to life. Or are we people that believe that we were created for so much more and with so much more capacity for growth, for development, and for good? So today we want to look at distortions of worship because what happens sometimes is that we set out to be worshipers of the true God you know, we, we, we sit and we reason and we realize that everything couldn't come from nothing for no reason. That's madness. That's insanity. That's not science. We realize that it would have to take a person, a personal being with great intelligence and great purpose and, frankly, great patience and love for all the various life forms to exist and the complexity of the universe and so forth. So, so thinking people that want to worship the Creator sometimes we still we still have problems because we get off into this distortions of worship now just want to ask a question uh, how many of you in here you perhaps wear glasses or you have glasses and you need those because you can't see distance can i just see your hands real quick oh boy it's a lot of you well for you that have those you may want to just take them off because i think i'll look a little better to you for the whole thing <laughs> but 
when we go through that process, and it's kind of a fun process um, in its own way, for the eye exam, there, there's three components to a good eye exam. Okay, first of all, you got to have an accurate chart. You know, you don't want blurry letters or anything like that. The chart has to be accurate. You have to have sufficient light in the room. You know, the chart could be accurate, but if the lights are all turned down and it's total dark, you're not going to see anything. And then, of course, the key, the fun part, is the lens. It's when they put that lens, you know, on your eye, and they start up, this one or this one, this one or this one. And, and, and if you're like me, when they start getting close to where the image is coming in clear, I start thinking, you're messing with me. Now, you're tricking me. You're going back to the same one that I said was not good, and you're, you're, you're going to show that I don't know what I'm doing, you know. But they keep moving the lenses, and finally, it's the lens that dictates for our experience how well we actually see the chart as it is. I have to have enough light in the room. I have to have an accurate chart, but, but I have to have for my eye, for my soul, I have to have a certain lens. And, and what if each of us actually has a lens, as it were, to our soul, and through that lens of our soul, this is where we derive our, our image of God. When you leave there, when you leave there and they, you know, they say, okay, that's the lens. You sure? You sure? That's the one. This one, this one, this one. And you say, yeah, 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 that one. You know at that point, it's wissy wig for you when you go to get your glasses, right? Everybody know what I'm talking about? Wissy wig? Wissy wig? Wissy wig? What you see is what you get. Once you say, yeah, that one, that's the kind of glasses you're going to get. And that's what you're going to see everywhere you go. Spiritually speaking, the lens of our soul, you got to follow with me on this one, because this is where it gets a little, little, a little hard. Some of us might, with our minds, say we, we are worshiping the Creator as the Creator has revealed Himself in Scripture, and particularly in Christ. We'll get to that later. And, and so that's, that's our desire, that's our intent, and, and we would want to be fixated in that way, but, but the truth is sometimes there is another lens that's on our soul and it distorts our image of God as he is and when that happens it's it's so sad because it deprives us of the beauty of the real God the goodness of the real God we sang about that it is so hard for us as human beings to believe in the kind of entire unselfish goodness that exists in the real God um, how perfect his plans, how perfect his, his uh, practices, his interactions with us. We, we find this so hard. And if our image, if our lens is, is distorting that image, it becomes even harder. And, and we're deprived of the clarity, the confidence, the joy, the peace, the enthusiasm, the energy, uh, the certainty that God wants us to walk through life with as his followers. So... The lens is important. Distortions of worship. Distortions of worship come from distorted images of God. Now remember what I said. We might have intellectually the intent to worship the God who is the creator as he's revealed in scripture, but there may be distorted images of God already across our soul and they start to distort that vision of God as he really is. All right, I'm gonna share with you about nine 
common distortions. This is by no means all the distortions. We can stand up here all day with distortions of the image of God. But these are kind of common ones. I'm going to have to go through them kind of quick. But here we go. Common distortions. Some people have an image of God that he's like a cosmic vending machine. He just is there in heaven to bail us out when we're in trouble or to give us stuff we want when we want it. Someone even goes so far as to say, we just need to claim things from God. He kind of likes it when we just claim. We just demand stuff. He just exists to give us stuff we want. Then there's this one, the non-judgmental drinking buddy God. That one's getting more, more traction these days. This is this hyper, super tolerant God that regardless of what we do or what we think or what we intend to do, he just kind of, hey, man, you know, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, no biggie, you know, we're not hurting anybody too much anyway, you know. Just kind of whatever we do, it's cool, it's fine. He, he doesn't seem to care about our conduct. There, there's this one, the cosmic prosecutor God. He's just always looking to see what we do wrong, and he wants to condemn us for it. He wants us to live with a lot of guilt and a lot of discomfort, supposedly motivational. Close to that one, the impossible to please God. Now, this is the one where no matter how much we are seeking him, no matter how much we are wanting to please him, serve him, serve others, we always feel we're falling short. Always feel we're falling short. Sometimes we've had parents that, you know, we, we got to be, they said, you can do better than that, you need to get that A, you know. And, and so this, this kind of gives us this lens that we view God through that you can never quite please him. You could always do a little bit more. He's never quite satisfied. The cosmic puppeteer God. Uh, this is the God that everything is pre-planned, pre-programmed. Free will is nothing but a delusion. We don't have free will. We're just all like in the matrix. We're all just being manipulated. And he is just kind of entertaining himself. He's the, the cosmic puppeteer that is in control of everyone and everything. The mirror, mirror God. The mirror, mirror God is that you look in the mirror and whatever you see of your own image, whatever you like, whatever you desire, whatever your conduct practices are, that's the way you see God. God always approves of anything that you want, that you're doing, that you are. The mirror, mirror God. The more brawn than brains God, and these last three are somewhat close together, but the more brawns than brain God, this is a God that's not very relationally or emotionally intelligent, easy to fool. You can just kind of figure out one or two things that he likes. You know, for example, some people it's like, well, I, I, I go to church every Sunday, and they think that regardless of what happens the other six days of the week that's okay with with the more brawn than brains God because he's kind of a dumb fella and and if you just do one or two things he forgets everything else is, is the notion close to that one is the needy ego God this is the God that really really needs us saying I can't do anything without you and I am so thankful that you do everything for me now don't get me wrong there's some truth to this there's some truth to a lot of these images but it's the idea that, that God sits here and says, okay, okay, as long as you acknowledge me, as long as you acknowledge you can't do anything without me, I'm okay with you. You go, go your way, go your way. And then there's the irrational, easily entertained God. This is the God that gets off on ceremony or ritual. You know, you, you light some candles, and he's like, hey, I'm cool. I like you everything is fine or you recite some prayers redundant prayers again and again or you go on a pilgrimage or you give a certain amount of money or something like that. and he's like hey hey that 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 makes me feel good when you do that when i when i see you do that i feel good we're, we're okay these are some pretty common i wish they weren't 
But there's some pretty common distortions of the real God. They all fall way short of the goodness and, and the wonderful complexity of the real God. Let me rephrase that, complexity and simplicity. The real God is complex because we are complex beings made in his image, but he's simple in that he has revealed himself as he really is, and he, he wants to be known. Now, I'm going to take you to a portion of Scripture, and this comes toward the end of the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus' life. The religious leaders of his day uh, they have been dogging his trail for the whole three and a half years. It's really a fascinating thing. The common everyday people, they were thrilled with Christ. Every, every time they could hear him, they would pile together just to hear him speak. Of course, he did many things for the people, but the religious leaders of the day, individuals that by, by the way, at that time, many of them had the entire Old Testament memorized. Anybody here got the entire Old Testament memorized? <laughs> Um, not me, I was just joking. I was trying to prod you to lie in front of God today. <laughs> so they just constantly, constantly sought to entrap Jesus. They would not accept that he was the one they had been waiting for for 1,500 years, the Messiah, the Christ. They, they didn't like his style of Messiahhood, for want of a better chance, and I'll, I'll enlarge on that as we go on. So we're going to look at a portion of Scripture where... <laughs> Where gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is anything but gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Where he's finally, toward the end of his ministry, he is talking to these individuals, giving them, as it were, one last chance to come to their senses about their attitude toward Christ. So here we go. It's a bit of a powerful passage. Matthew 23, 5. Speaking of these religious leaders, he says, everything they do is done for people to see he's saying you know all their outward appearances of piety it, it, it's it's uh, they want to impress people they care more about people they make their phylacteries anybody here know what a phylactery is I, don't feel bad if you don't I'll, I'll tell you in a minute the phylactery is wide and the tassels on their garments long and we're like what is this phylacteries and tassels phylacteries are these like leather pouches that jewish individuals some orthodox still wear on their head and on their arms and in them are portions of the old testament okay the tassels the tassels for the jews meant that they were those that wanted to live in obedience to god's word and the tassels that hung down on their corner of their garments were reminders we are those we're different we live to be obedient to God. We live to represent him to the world. Now, these guys, not only did they have the phylacteries on their heads and on their arms, but they made them extra big, and they made their tassels extra long. They wanted the people to know, hey, 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 we're not just ordinary devotees of God. We're the top of the line. We're, we're the best of the best. They wanted to impress the people with how pious, how devoted they were. All right, let me get back to the text. They make their flatteries wide and the tassels in their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. Again, they wanted prominence. They wanted to be seen. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi, which just means teacher, by others. Now Jesus starts to speak to them, verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You, what is the word? Hypocrites. It's a Greek word, and it means one that wears a mask. It was used for actors in those days, in uh, early times. Those that are not being authentic. They're presenting an external image that is not representative of who they actually are on the inside. 
He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. What Jesus meant by that is, as I said at the beginning, they had been fighting with Jesus through his whole ministry. Jesus is bringing many to trust in God and enter into the kingdom of God that was freely open to anyone that would be willing to trust their creator. But these guys were trying to say, you can't trust what he says. You can't believe what he says. Don't you think for one minute that you're good enough that God will let you into his kingdom. So he's, he's blasting them at this point. He said, not only will you, meaning them, not enter, but you're keeping others by trying to influence them in contrary ways. It goes on. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish. They were very scrupulous about you know, cleaning things, washing their hands before eating and so forth. But inside they are full of, what is the word? Greed and self-indulgence. Now, their focus, their focus and the God that they were fixated on, the lens that they were seeing God through was a God that was very concerned with externals and ceremony and, and, and scrupulous care of ceremony, washing things a certain way, uh, you know, tithing and not just giving 10% of their income, but, but giving 10% of whatever's in their garden and things like that. They were very scrupulous about these things. And so, Jesus is trying to draw their attention. Do you think that the creator is that stupid? Is, in essence, what Jesus is saying, that, he, that he's so impressed with your external behavior, you think he doesn't look inside you and see your greed and your self-indulgence? They, the lens of the God that they worshiped, didn't care about their internal condition or their true character, their true character and their true conduct. But that's not the real creator. He, he wouldn't be worth worshiping if he didn't care what I was really like inside and the way that I actually conduct myself. If he was only concerned about some, you know, scrupulosity that I might have about uh, rituals or ceremonies or, or even memorizing his word. If that's all it, it was and it never changed me inside and changed my conduct, well, he wouldn't be a good God if he didn't care about those things. Blind Pharisees first cleaned the inside of the cup and the dish and then the outside will also be clean he goes on woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you're like whitewashed tombs you look beautiful on the where outside how many of you know it's really easy to look pious on the outside but if everybody could see everything that goes through our hearts our minds our imaginations we'd all probably be a little uncomfortable but we can sit here, you know, today, or I can stand here today, and we can, all, we can all look pretty pious, pretty good, you know. He says, they look on the outside. On the inside, you're full of the bones of dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. Remember, they were concerned about the way people view them. But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is turning their attention again and saying, the real God, the real creator, he cares about the inside. He cares about why we do what we do, not just what we do. But he cares about that too. They were fixated. Their image of God that distorted their worship was a God that was easily appeased by external behavior and who could also be manipulated uh, that they, they were very mercenary they thought that they could by doing certain rituals and things scrupulously they could get God to do things for them where God was almost obligated to 
Now we'll take it one more step. Mark 7, Jesus still speaking. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their, with their what? Yes. Meaning their mouths, you know, they're, they're singing praise to God and so forth. Uh, but their hearts, inside once again, are far from me. God is always concerned about the inside. It says in the Old Testament that, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. He always cares about what's going on inside of you and I because it's what's going on inside of you and I that is the real essence of who we are, which will determine the quality of our life and obviously reveals the content of our true character. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a what? Farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. All right. Now, we're going to get into this a little more because when you really let this sink in, this is a little shocking about these individuals, and it's a little alarming because, as I said, these are individuals that, that spent their entire lives fixated, focused on what they would say is serving God. Many of them had memorized the entire Old Testament. New Testament didn't exist when this was going on. Jesus, you know, was the start of the New Testament. So these are individuals that their whole life appeared to revolve around studying God's Word so that they could worship God and please Him and live in accord with His Word and will. And yet here's God. This is the thing we easily forget when we're reading the New Testament. They were, they were not just standing in the presence of the Messiah that they all were supposed to be waiting for, the one that was going to fix everything and set everything right, but the Messiah turns out to be the creator himself. Jesus is God in flesh. This, the New Testament is redundant on that. So these individuals, they're arguing with God. They don't, they don't, they not only do they not recognize him, they don't like him at all. They instigate, they successfully end up instigating his crucifixion. So how could these guys go so wrong? And that's alarming or should be for us because it means that we could go that wrong. We, we, could, we who possess the entire revelation of God now in the Bible, not just the Old Testament but the New Testament, it means that we too, we too could immerse ourselves in God's word, immerse ourselves in communities of worship and still miss God himself. Now, it's not nearly as likely, so you can breathe easy because of some things that, that we experience now that they did not. But nevertheless, the, the problem is one that should be, um, we should seek to understand it so that we can uh, make sure that this kind of lens is not somehow inadvertently or at least vestiges of some of these false lenses and views of God that distort worship are not existent in us. So we'll, we'll, we'll probe this a little bit. Now, Jesus said right from the beginning, one of their, in, in our trying to understand this, one of their problems was this. They loved human approval rather than the approval of God. They cared more about other people being impressed with their piety than God himself. Okay, so that, that was one thing that led them astray. It is highly likely that in this room, some of us, if not a lot of us, we, we are, if not out-and-out out approval addicts, we really do care an awful lot about the approval of others, particularly certain people in our lives. Perhaps to the point that it molds us and shapes us and 
control some of the ways that we think in ways that, that we're not even deeply aware of but need to be. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about approval in general. That's, that's part of the human, uh, you know, the human way of walking together and working together and collaborating and so forth. But there's a degree where this thing can get to be dangerous. They care too much about, listen, the whole message for somebody in here today might be, maybe it's me and I just care too much about what other people think of me. One of the things when we really come into a trusting relationship with God as he's revealed in Christ, when we really put our trust in Christ and become his follower, it should free us to some degree and then progressively free us from the fear of disapproval of others. When you think it through, at the end of the day, I am not going to stand in, before judgment in front of any of you, and you're not going to stand in front of me for judgment. doesn't really matter what I think at the end of the day. What really matters is that I'm going to stand before Christ and be judged, the one that knows every secret inside of me, everything I've ever done, everything I've ever thought, and so will you. Now, the good news is he's the safest, most loving, most merciful person in the universe but if we internalize that that thing that that it's ultimately God that's going to judge us not another human being it can be very liberating and we start to get a clearer picture of this God that we are meant to worship and that we we can celebrate in worshiping so they had a problem with human approval another thing Isaiah now this is going back to the Old Testament and this is just sort of showing the cycle they slipped into, the, the cycle of depending upon ritual and ceremony uh, and unawareness that God cares about character and thought. It says, who, this is God talking to them in the Old Testament, so they should have known. Jesus shouldn't have had to bring this back up to them 700 years later. This was written about 700 B.C. Who wants your sacrifices when you have no sorrow for your sins? God's trying to get them to think, I don't care about your rituals and sacrifices. I want you to change your character, your sins are destroying you. Your sins are destroying one another. Your sins are destroying society. He's saying, I want you to deal with that stuff because I love you. The incense you bring me is a stench in my nostrils. Again, this is God talking to his people in the Old Testament. Your holy celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting. That's depriving oneself of food for supposedly the sake of, you know, pleasing or honoring God or so forth. Even your most pious meetings are all, what is the word? Frauds. So they were doing religious things, meeting in religious context, but it was not affecting their inner life at all, their conduct at all, their character at all. I want nothing more to do with them. This is God talking. He says, I hate them all, not them, but their rituals. I can't stand the sight of them. Wash yourselves. Now he's talking about what does matter to God. Wash yourselves, be clean. Let me no longer see you doing all these wicked things Quit your evil ways. So the individuals that Jesus was arguing with in the New Testament, they should have known this. They had the Old Testament memorized. They should have known God had always, all through history with his people, saying, I love you, and because I love you, I care so much about who you authentically are and what you really think and the way you actually conduct yourselves. I don't just care what you do because I love you so much. I care why you're doing it. You, you'll never experience the quality of life that God wants us to experience until the inside is consistent and clean as the outside. But both must be clean. The God who loves us most <coughs> wants what's best, knows what's best. He wants to work with us 
to clean not just the outside, and that's important, <coughs> our external conduct, but the inside as well. So we have to ask the question, what went wrong with these guys? These guys whose lives revolved around um, worshiping God, we would say, these, these guys that Jesus was confronting, that, that lived immersed in the Old Testament. What went wrong with these guys? Let me lay it out for you real quick. What went wrong? First of all, they had prejudice. They had this idea in their minds that the, the Christ, the Messiah, was going to be a, a geopolitical figure, a militaristic figure who would make Israel the head of the nations again and finally do away with all Roman oppression. And, and the Israelites as a group had just been tired of being oppressed by Gentile nations. And, and so they left out the portions of Scripture that talked about the need for the Messiah to bring inner cleansing cleansing of character cleansing of hearts and minds and they fixated on the messiah taking over the rule of the world and making themselves you know the co-rulers with him so they had prejudice and they couldn't see christ the real messiah they couldn't see the creator because they had this mental prejudice they had this picture in place this lens in place over their souls of what god what the messiah would be like the next thing was peer pressure these guys really cared about what their fellow rabbis thought about them and they had all kind of colluded together we don't like this jesus guy this jesus guy is making us look bad he's saying we're all wet we're all wrong we're misrepresenting god we don't like him and so they were not gonna you know let go of the approval of their fellow teachers and rabbis and with that came pride remember they talked about they wore extra long tassels and big great big phylacteries on their heads the people would say rabbi rabbi they were like rock stars in that day it's kind of hard for us to you know figure it think it through today but they were powerful prestigious celebrities popular and jesus was telling them they were wrong they were wrong in the way they represented god they were wrong in the way they represented god's feelings about ordinary people and so forth and so their pride got in the way they couldn't knuckle under and admit that jesus even though <laughs> they didn't know they were dealing with God himself in Jesus and then the last one performance because they were really good at performing certain things whether it was fasting or whether it was reciting prayers or whether it was reciting how much of the Bible they had memorized or, or their, their scrupulosity about tithing their, their gardens and so forth they could master certain performances and that's what they zeroed in on the God that they worshipped he really cared about their performances didn't matter what their conduct was like didn't matter what their inner world their real thoughts their real desires didn't matter he was impressed with their performance now this performance thing it, it, it is not an unusual thing performance tends to be the default distortion of worship for almost all humans you look at almost every pagan form of religiosity on the planet it's all about some performance it's all about some ritual it's all about some cycle of progression or ritual you you have to do something if you do this one thing if you perform in this way if you go on this pilgrimage if you light these candles if you recite these prayers whatever it is the big man is okay with you everything else doesn't matter he he's excited about these things he's entertained when we do these things which makes God pretty, pretty weak, uh, pretty, you know, uh, unintelligent, pretty worthless. 
Because if he doesn't love me enough to care about what's going on inside me and about my actual contact or conduct, he, he's not really very worthy of my trust and my supreme regard. Let me add to this. This performance that tends to be the default distortion of worship, it's manifested in intentional acts, thought, what is that word? Meritorious. The way it works is that we convince ourselves, the lens goes over our eye, that as long as I do this, God is okay with me. And I, you know, I've heard a million of these things. There, there are people, uh, they are convinced that if they, let's say, come out to a place like this, come out to church on Christmas and Easter, that, that that's all, that, that's cool, man. The man upstairs is, is good with that. That's all that's required. It's a meritorious act. They have convinced themselves that it merits the favor, which makes the deity pretty unintelligent. Uh, there's all kinds of things we could fill in the blanks here with. But we convince ourselves that there are certain acts that put on the scale in God's mind, they tip the scale in our behalf. If I do this, man, as long as, long as I, maybe, maybe you know, I'm going to go to church every single Sunday for the rest of my life. That will tip the scale. If we're thinking that way, now, I, I desire to go to church every single Sunday because I, I just love God, I love his people, but I'm not doing it because I think it's going to tip some scale and merit something in God that he says, yes, yes, you, not you, you, not you, you, not you. No. But as human beings, we tend to convince ourselves. <laughs> I was telling somebody recently this week, I, when I was still doing construction work, rode up and down the road for a while with this one particular man and he, he would embarrass me terribly in front of others I was a Christian he was not I'm just going to say what the truth is he was not but he wanted to be known as a Christian kind of like those Pharisees and he would say sometimes in front of the other men you know I, every week every week I drop my $10 in that plate Randy you know what I'm talking about don't you Randy you know and I'm like dude don't involve me in this <laughs> I'm like, you really think 10 bucks is, is impressing God? You know, I mean, I, I know what you make. I made the same amount. I mean, but, but it was this thought. He really believed that one meritorious act, or that one act of dropping his 10 bucks in a plate, God's like, wow, man, go on and do whatever you want now. I don't really care what you do. Be lustful, be, be corrupt, be a liar, be a cheat, you know. Do whatever you want to do. You drop that 10, you're my man. We're We're okay. We're okay. We, we struggle with this as humans. We always tend to lean toward some performance uh, being significant to please God without, without an authentic change of character. Let me go on. Now let's contrast that with something I'm calling reactional acts thought virtuous. Reactional acts thought virtuous there's a verse from Micah in the Old Testament it was written right around the same time as Isaiah and it gives us a picture of what I meant and then I'm going to go back to that slide in just a minute Micah 6 8 it says no the Lord has told us what is good and what he requires of us this is Old Testament so these those fellows that Jesus was addressing should have known this what he requires of us is this to do what is just to show constant love and to live in what kind of humble fellowship with our God when I trust God and I live in humble fellowship with him 
He can lead me onto paths of righteousness. He can help me grow and help me develop. He can show me what I don't know so that I can avoid being uh, hurtful to myself or hurtful to others. I'm reacting to God, and I'm reacting in a way that a finite being intelligently should react to an infinite being. I don't know how much I don't know, so I put my trust in one who knows everything, and I walk humbly with him. I'm teaching because I trust him. I give him supreme regard. So here's an authentic relationship. Forget religion. Don't use the word religion even. Don't, don't even use it. Forget religion. Religion is me or you trying to appease God, trying to manipulate God. What God has always wanted is an authentic relationship with his people. He just needs us to trust him and to walk humbly with him. He'll lead us. He'll guide us. He'll mold us. He'll shape us. He'll help us get cleaned up on the inside as well as the outside. So constant love and to live in humble fellowship with our God. Now, if I could go back to that slide before it. So this last part, what I'm calling reactional acts thought virtuous. It means that I'm just reacting to God. He says, do it. I say, okay, Lord, I trust you. I'm going to learn to do it. He says, cultivate this characteristic, Randy. I'm going to learn to do it. I'm going to start cultivating. He says, don't do that. That's not the way I designed you. That, that's wrong. That's sin. I trust you, God. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to fight that. I'm going to resist that. I'm going to move that out of my life. That's all it's talking about, authentic relationship. Not thinking that I can do some meritorious act that cancels out the good that God wants to do for me but cannot do for me unless I authentically trust him and walk humbly with him I hope that makes sense to you so, so now we can understand what was going on with these guys that even though God was right in, in their face they didn't like him they didn't like him at all they didn't want to listen to him because of the lens that was over their eyes now now let's let's get on this side of the equation so what about us randy what i mean we got the word of god how do we know that that's not going to happen to us that we're going to have a bad lens on our eyes and that we're not going to like god for himself and so forth so let's talk about that let's talk about this avoiding it we all want to avoid becoming like these individuals became so here's the difference that we had early in the message i said we have an advantage that they didn't have so let me go right to that New Testament book of Colossians, Paul, the apostle, writing to individuals that were followers of Christ in a Greek city named Colossae. He says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily, where? In Christ. What Paul is saying, he's saying that everything there is that can be fathomed, everything there is that can be understood about God, he has revealed in Christ, in the humanity of Christ, in his life, in his teaching, in his miracles, in his sacrificial death, in his resurrection, everything that we can now know, everything there is to be known by God. We don't have to be uh, wondering anymore what God thinks or feels about certain things. He's revealed it all in Christ. So we have a grand advantage. Christ is the lens, Christ is the light, and Christ is the chart. Remember the eye exam example I started with? He is all of those things. He is the chart that shows us exactly what God is like, the truth about God, the truth about life. He is the light. It's as we immerse ourselves in his word that the lights go on and we start to see what we could not see before. But he's also the lens. And when, in particular, we read the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, but particularly the Old Testament, we need to read it through the lens of Christ. If you just go to the Old, Old Testament cold turkey and start there, 
you're going to get pretty confused. But if you know what the Scripture teaches about Christ in the New Testament, and then you put it on as your lens and you look at the Old Testament, many of the things that seem confusing and maybe even unfathomable in the Old Testament will become crystal clear when you look through the lens of Christ. You say, Randy, that's, that's backwards, man. You, in all books today, you start in the front and you read you know, to the right. But the Bible is not an ordinary book. It's not one book, it's 66 books. And you must read the New Testament and know the truth about God as he's revealed in Christ before you can understand some of the things that go on in the Old Testament. So it's a reverse kind of a process. So that's the first thing. We have a crystal clear image now of what God's like. And he's exactly like Jesus. And that's why you'll hear me say again and again, our God, the creator, the almighty, the all-powerful, the one who can do anything that he wants, he is the safest, kindest, most loving. <laughs> in fact, I wish I had more words. Uh, what I know, what I've experienced in following him the years that I have, you'll never, ever, you'll never concoct an image that's, that's sufficient to show the goodness that is awaiting to display itself in your life, in our lives, as we are just willing to trust him and walk humbly with him. That's all he asks. He's better than the best that we are capable of even imagining. Let me take it a little further. Now, I'm, 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 I'm putting together here something for you, and I'm going to quickly land a plane. I'm putting together a formula because I want to I share with each of you a way that when we go to the Word of God, and I hope you are all doing that. I hope you all have good study Bibles with lots of good notes, and I hope you're reading your Bible regularly, and you're getting in groups, and you're doing all these things. God wants us to know Him personally. But... I want to I give you a formula of how when you and I, unlike those Pharisees, when we go to the Word of God, we can be sure that we're going to see the truth as it is, and we're not going to have those distorted lenses uh, blurring our, our vision of God. So I'm, I'm building up, and then I'll, I'll summarize it at the end. Here we go. Matthew 7, first thing. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I must, you must, we must, when we go to the Word of God, say, God, I am here. I just want to know you. I want to know your truth. Rattle me if you want. Turn my life upside down. I don't care. I just want to know you. And I just want to know the truth. One of the first experiences I had, I was age 23 when I turned to Christ and I started reading the Bible. One of the first experiences I had, it's a little bit, you know, a little bit mystical, but, but bear with me. I knew as I was reading this book, this was not just a normal book. I knew that as I was reading, I was being read. I, the, the presence of God was palpable, and I knew it. And I knew that I better approach this book in a whole different way than any other book that I've ever approached. Because... I was interacting with the living God. It, it was just something I just knew. Many of you perhaps have had the same experience. But I've got to be sincere. That's the first point. I've got to be sincere. I am seeking God and I am seeking his truth no matter what that truth may be. Let me go on. Blessed are the, the pure in heart for they will see God. And by pure in heart it just means that all I want to know is God as he really is I just want to see him. I, I'm not seeking something from him. I'm not being a mercenary. I'm not seeking how to appease him. I'm just seeking him. I want to know him for himself. That is important as we go to the word of God. Let's look at another principle. 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Do your best. This takes some effort. Do your best to present yourself to God 
as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly, correctly, correctly handles the word of truth. We, we can't just take God's word and impose our ideas on it. We can't just flip it open in any place and say, oh, this is God's word for me today. I, I mean, the, the Bible, God laid out his word in a way that it has to be uh, systematically, humbly approached and that's why God put teachers in the church and, and we live in an age where there's lots of teaching and lots of teachers and lots of study helps and things but correctly there is a right way and a wrong way to handle God's word so we have to make some effort in this thing let's go on James 1 verse 13 says so give it of all uncleanness and all the remains of wickedness and with what kind of a spirit a humble spirit a humble spirit receive the word of God which is implanted actually rooted in your heart which is able to save your souls I, I mentioned earlier when we go to the word of God we're interacting with God you better not go with a haughty spirit you better not go with an antagonistic spirit you better not go with a know-it-all prove-it-to-me spirit a skeptical spirit you will get nothing because the God that loves you knows he cannot help you or I until we are humble we should be humble we can't control the next brainwave we can't control the next heartbeat we're we're completely dependent creatures why would we you know he can't lead us he can't guide us he can't teach us until we're humble when we go to the word of god we need to have sincerity we need to have resilience and tenacity we're, we're going to work hard we're going to study to handle it correctly and, and then we need humility when we go to the word of god let me go on one last one second timothy three sixteen. it says all scripture is God breathed and it's useful for teaching I need to be taught rebuking I need to be rebuked sometimes and correcting I frequently need to be corrected and training in righteousness so when I go to the scripture I, I need to be objective and I need to be teachable or willing to be corrected if I go with my own thoughts that I'm going to impose on God and his word I, I'm not going to get anything at all so let me put this together real quick what I've actually went through with you is this seek God in his truth with sincerity first of all I'm not seeking something from him I'm seeking him tenacity it's going to take work the Bible is not meant to be easy if God wanted it to be super duper easy it would be super duper easy it's not humility I've got to go with a humble spirit and then I've got to try and this is where it gets hard to be objective and with correctability in other words I'm going to go and I'm going to try my best to understand what the truth is and no matter what the truth is I'm going to take it to heart and if it means that I have to change my conduct change my behavior I'm going to let it correct me and I'm going to let it redirect me if you follow this path you will find God as he really is and you will be increasingly increasingly amazed that our God, our Creator, is so much higher, so much better than anyone or anything that we can imagine. And you will find enthusiasm and joy and peace and a sense of purpose and a sense of value and significance walking uh, increasingly existent in you through all the days and all the ups and downs and all the twists and turns of life. And the quality of your life and the content of your character will become increasingly meaningful and your character more increasingly beautiful. Let me close with reviewing one more time 
these common distortions because it is certainly possible that you're in here and you're saying Randy I've really put my trust in Christ I believe that God's revealed himself fully in Christ and I want to follow him fully and freely and I want to follow him forever but but some of us are still being cheated we're still being tormented because some of the vestiges of some of these perhaps or maybe others distorted images of God are still affecting us I mean for example let's just say that you've got the impossible to please God image somewhere tucked back in your psyche you're going to be deprived of joy you're going to be deprived of peace you're you're going to walk around thinking that man I'm never doing enough for God I I just got to do more you're not going to have the the joy the peace the certainty the confidence that God wants you to have it would be wise for us to try to sort through get along with God think through some things get pencil and paper write something and see if there might be some of these distorted images or other distorted images in our minds that are depriving us of the truth about the real God and the life that results in us and from us when we are truly fixated on God as he really is we start out by saying every human being wants to be happy very few human beings associate worship with happiness and yet what I've said repeatedly in this series is that the quality of our life and the content of our character absolutely is dictated by what kind of worshipers we are so let's close with a couple thoughts it could be uh, that a lot of stuff is new to you today and you've never even considered um, your relationship with God as it centers in Christ so in a world where everybody's following somebody we're either following ourselves or following somebody else or some other ideology of some type would you maybe do what I did at age 23 and today stop and say if if Jesus was intelligent enough to create the universe and if he loved you and I enough to sacrifice himself on the cross who better to trust who better to follow than the creator and sustainer of the universe and the lover of our souls the one that loves us with sacrificial love if you're here and you've never made the decision it's a decision you can make we we make to put your trust in Christ and become his follower that's what it means to be a Christian and Jesus gives some wonderful promises some wonderful enticements he says that anyone that puts their trust in him and becomes his follower he will give as a free gift eternal life that means life forever in his kingdom where there's no more sickness sorrow pain and death he promises not just the forgiveness of all of our sins but the gift of everlasting life and the fullness of his presence to guide us and direct us not only that he says you are forever a part of my people my family he's going to immerse us he's going to put some of the most wonderful people in our lives that are going to help that process for us to change and grow but it all starts with your decision to say I don't care who who the rest of the world's following everybody's following somebody but from this day on I am going to follow Christ he has won my trust he died for me on the cross he's intelligent enough to create this universe I'm going to follow Jesus so maybe some of you this will be the day man that all heaven will break loose rejoicing that's what the scripture teaches when an individual puts their trust in Christ becomes his follower maybe some of us though the deal is we've been we've been limping along through life because of distorted images of God maybe we we weren't even aware of them maybe they're so deep in our psyche that we need some help we, we need somebody another Christian more experienced or some Christian counselor or something to help us sort through some of the mess so that we can walk in the fullness of joy and the fullness of power that God really wants his people to walk in so if you maybe need to seek out you know what lens is distorting your vision of God
uh, I, I hope you'll, you'll seek some help and, uh, and work your way through it because, man, it is worth the effort, I can Amen. assure you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of your heart, the beauty of your word, and thank you for revealing yourself clearly and comprehensively in Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.